Have you ever had um, <clears throat> something where you built up expectations in anticipation for it because you had to wait for it to happen? Like maybe um, it was one of your favorite books and you were hoping that it would come out to a movie and you heard it was and then um, finally did or um, you were going somewhere on a vacation. Maybe it was a famous landmark that you were going to see like a big ball of yarn in the middle of Kansas or something. And uh, um, But once the event happened, uh, it's almost like you had set your expectations so high that the hype was so big that um, the actual event happened and uh, and this wasn't able to live up to the, the expectations that you had already created. Well, <clears throat> so we've been talking about starting this covenant series for several weeks now and, and then, you know, we kind of had some COVID issues and then uh, kept getting pushed back, pushed back. And I know that we're personally uh, excited that we can at least get started today, but I hope that uh, we've not built up the expectations to where uh, in the middle of the message tonight, you're thinking, uh, well, what are we gonna have for dinner tonight? Um, <clears throat> but I don't think you will, because um, uh, this, uh, we're going to start off looking at this first phrase. I'm going to read this first statement um, in the covenant. It says, it starts off like this. In recognition of Christ's purpose for the church and having been saved by God's grace and baptized in obedience to Christ Jesus's command, we, the members of Liberty Hills Bible Church, do wholeheartedly and joyfully enter into the following covenant. And um, I'm excited about tonight because we're just going to focus on just the very first word, in, at the beginning of the phrase, in recognition of Christ's purpose for the church. And just that little word, in, I-N, it's packed full of so much meaning that it's going to take at least three or four weeks to just to unpack that word and the applications that we can get from it. So now I'm sure you're thinking, what's for dinner tonight? <laughs> <clears throat> um, that's what we call a setup. Uh, so now that I've lowered your expectations, um, I can begin the real message. Uh, but for real, we're just gonna uh, we're gonna look at the phrase in recognition of Christ's purpose for the church, and um, it's kind of implied in there, right, that uh, we're recognizing something. Uh, so um, since it's implied that we, the members of Liberty Hills Bible Church, recognize Christ's purpose for the church. We're just going to spend some time seeing what the word says about the purpose of the church. And um, I'm going to talk about it uh, from some different aspects here, okay? Because, uh, you know, we talked about our do we call it a purpose statement, our mission statement, our purpose statement. Okay, so, and, and, and uh, but um, if you look up those different words, um, I'm going to talk about uh, purpose in a different way from the aspect of answering the, the why questions. Why does the church exist? Why what did God create it? Um, and so forth. And, and then I'm going to talk about mission um, from the aspect of answering the what questions. What is the church here to do and, and for whom? Um, and then I'm going to talk about the how. Uh, of the church from the aspect of how things were intended to work in the church. 
How do we see this working in the New Testament church um, from the Word? And what can we learn? What patterns do we see? Um, now, it's going to be two weeks. And today, the plan is, is only to get through the whys. And next week, the focus will be um, on, frankly, the more practical side of the what's and the how's. Um, but before we get into the whys, um, there was uh, something in my study that uh, didn't really fall into one of those categories. Um, but it's probably the most important thing about the church a statement that Jesus made, and really it's the first statement that we come across in the New Testament in, in Matthew um, 16. And, um, and this is the fact that the church is the one thing that Jesus promised to build. And, um, and here's how this uh, dialogue goes between Jesus and the Apostle Peter. Um, he, Jesus asked the, all the apostles this question, who do you say that I am? Peter spoke up and replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, saying, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, in my understanding, and probably yours too, Jesus is not stating that he would be building his church on a man. Um, after all, an imperfect man would, would not be a very solid foundation um, that would stand the test of time. Um, and Peter, this imperfect man here, was not even able to muster the revelation that Jesus was the Christ. Uh, but only God was able to do that through this imperfect man. Um, but rather, what Peter did here, prompted by God, was to speak this foundational truth about the church. And that is that Jesus was the Messiah, the son of the living God. Um, this goes together with what Paul stated in Ephesians 2. Um, there were verses shared about foundations and cornerstones, uh, which was good in, in, the, uh, in the introductory um, singing time. Um, this, verse, this verse was not shared, uh, I'm going to share it now. Ephesians 2, 19 <clears throat> through 22. And it goes like this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So think of it like this. Um, back in the day in which Christ was speaking, the cornerstone was always the first stone laid during construction. And every other stone in the building was measured by the standard of the cornerstone to make sure everything was fitted together properly. So Jesus is the cornerstone of the household of God, which is just another term that Paul used in 1 Timothy, said the church is the household of God. But his apostles and prophets make up the rest of the foundation, not the people themselves, not the individuals themselves, and in that they would have the same honor as Christ would, 
but rather they serve as the foundation in so much as they speak the very words of God. Just like Peter spoke these words from God here in Matthew 16. Um, so it's the truth of God, it's the word of God um, from these individual apostles and prophets that is making up the rest of this foundation. Um, these words that Peter spoke, they didn't just well up inside of his own flesh. They were words that were revealed to him by God's word. They, they were God. They were God's words. Um, now back to this promise. Jesus will build his church. And I think we should just take a moment to praise the wisdom and power of our great God that in his providence, knowing that his church would be built on the cornerstone of himself and the foundation of his words and truth spoken through the apostles and prophets, that he would preserve his truth for thousands of years. I mean, that's, I know someone could say like, well, other religions have lasted a long time, Christianity has lasted a long time, um, so that's not really much evidence there, but if you think about it, really, it's pretty astounding that God has preserved his word for so all this time, from the Old Testament, his word, the New Testament, his word, and um, Jesus built the church through the apostles' teaching of what? Um, the, the Word of God. Um, if you just do a, a, a Bible gateway search on the Word of God in the New Testament, there's so many verses that come up, use the term Word of God. Um, and today we continue to have the apostles' teaching of the Word of God preserved. And just as the early church was devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, um, we can continue to do that individually by the fact that we read and study our own Bibles that we most of us have in our houses and corporately by being committed to a Bible teaching church like Liberty Hills. Um, this is a pretty amazing statistic, but um, in 2012, um, a survey of the top 10, they used the term most read books, okay, but you can't assume that they were all read. It's really based on the number of books printed and sold, okay, over the last 50 years. So from 2012 and then the previous 50 years, um, uh, what do you think is the number one book printed and sold? Well, the Bible. And it was 3.9 billion, okay? And um, now the number two book just goes to show that like there's an there's an anti-god enemy out there, you know. Uh, and uh, the number two book, and it's only one fifth of that number, which is eight hundred about eight hundred twenty million soul, was a book called Quotations from Chairman Mao Zedong. Okay, so communism uh, anti-god movement is is alive and well as well. Um, followed by number three at 400 million. Anyone care to guess what the number three book is in the last 50 years? Harry Potter. What? Harry Potter. That's it. Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah, good, perfect. And um, okay, and then last number four, at 103 million, so that's like even one fourth of Harry Potter. Anyone guess? It, it's Lord of the Rings. <laughs> So, um, anyway, uh, yeah, it's interesting. That, that lady who wrote Harry Potter, man, she must be 
she's got to be one of the richest people in the world, then, I would guess. Um, but uh, the point is, Jesus is alive and well and at work fulfilling his promise to build his church. And um, it's just, I mean, he, he has preserved his word. And um, we'll get back into this later, uh, next week more, but the church is not a building, obviously. It's, it's his people, um, with or without a building. And, and this people has a builder, okay, whose name is Christ. Um, I've heard that sometimes builders of homes will sometimes leave a mark in the home they're building that it found years later could identify, you know, who built that home. Um, and so uh, uh, Drew is working for a builder right now and they're building a home. And we, I was just telling him I was going to share this tonight. And I asked him like, hey, is, is Micah doing something to, you know, put kind of his mark on that home? And he said like, yeah, just this week, uh, the three of us who are building it, we signed a trust you know, the last trust that we put on the roof that's in the attic. And so I was like, wow, that just, uh, that's neat. That kind of confirms what I had heard and read before. And if someone comes back 50 years from now, they could see their names, um, you know, 100 years from now signed on that trust. Um, but just kind of like a painter of a portrait signing the painting. And, um, but Jesus gives us a mark, right? What is Jesus's mark? Um, in us. Well, it could be a number of things, but in my opinion, the main thing is the Holy Spirit. And um, like an owner of a painting knows by the signature who painted the portrait, um, how can we know that we belong to Jesus? And I, I wanted to go into this. Maybe I'll, uh, I'll talk to these guys um, about sending out this article that was really good. Uh, because at first I was, I was thinking... Um, because in my, in my own life, I'm just very, I have a very strong um, uh, sense of the Spirit's presence in my life, okay? But I did, and I was going to say, like, you know, do you have a sense of God's presence in your life? But I, did, I didn't want to get all, you know, you know, even if someone doesn't, by faith, the Spirit is in our lives. But I read this article that I, I'll talk to these guys this week about sending out um, of how we can know that, you know, the Spirit is working in our lives. And it, it, it's really good um, at, at, um, at you just being able to um, evaluate because some people sometimes, you know, there's times in their lives where there's dry times and they just don't feel real spiritual. And, you know, we, we all go through those kind of times. But, um, but the one verse that I came across is in 1 John 2, where he says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now does this imply that we will never sin? Well, that we are only in him if we always keep every commandment? Not at all, or else there would be no 1 John 1, 9 in the previous chapter about confessing our sins. But 1 John talks about walking in the light, that is being sincere, um, not deceptive about the truth of what's going on in our lives. And I, and I bring that up because I wanted to share about, like I've known people whom I firmly believe um, are followers of Jesus Christ, 
but um, they're just doubting if they're true believers sometimes because they have this up and down um, stumbling over some besetting sins, and yet they're very candid about their their struggle and their desire to walk in the light to be like Christ. And in my understanding, um, this is just more indicative of a the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak situation. It's not that they're unbelievers. In fact, when I see a desire like this inside of someone, um, what I see is the sanctifying work of the Spirit at work in a believer's life, not an unbeliever at all that would have no interest in, in having a desire to live godly for Christ Jesus. Um, so in keeping with Jesus' promise to build the church, which of course is his people, he has given us the Holy Spirit. And according to 1 Peter 1, 2, the Spirit is doing a work of sanctification within us to be obedient to Christ. So how else do we know that Jesus is building his church? Um, well, Acts 2 says, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Um, Acts 16 speaks of Lydia, and I, I, I really never saw that this until this week that I was coming across these verses. Um, it says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Um, it's not that like Paul persuaded her or twisted her arm into becoming a Christian. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. God was building. God was building his church. First Corinthians 3, 7 basically says that we can be planters and waterers but we cannot make things grow. Only God can give the growth. Um, so we might not be hearing of great numbers of people being added to the church in, in the U.S. in this time in history, but trust me, Jesus is building his church. He's, 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 he's not like asleep at the wheel. And uh, I wanted to share this one article that was written in just a few months ago in April of this year. So just bear with me for just a minute. The Iranian Revolution of 1979 established a hardline Islamic regime. Over the next two decades, Christians faced increasing opposition and persecution. All missionaries were kicked out, evangelism was outlawed, Bibles in Persia and Persian were banned and soon became scarce, and several pastors were killed. The church came under tremendous pressure, and many feared it would soon wither away and die. But the exact opposite has happened. In the last 20 years, more Iranians have become Christians than in the previous 13 centuries since Islam came to Iran. In 1979, there were an estimated 500 Christians from a Muslim background in Iran. Today, there are hundreds of thousands. Some estimate more than one million, according to the research organization Operation World. Iran has the fastest growing evangelical movement in the world. The second fastest growing church is in Afghanistan, where Afghans are being reached in large part by Iranians. And um, that was just from that article. And then um, just a friend of a friend that I know um, is friends with a couple that is in northern India and doing work in India and Nepal. Uh, been there for the past you know five years or so. and. And they said that the Lord is adding many that are being saved. I mean, so many that they need they need workers, you know. 
just true to, to God saying the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So do you believe Jesus is alive and well and building his church? Again, sometimes I think in our culture of instant time, everything needs to happen now, we lose sight of just longevity. You know, God, God doesn't, he doesn't get all fret about, you know, something not happening today or tomorrow or this week or this month or this year. Um, from the article I just read, it talked about the opposition towards Christianity in Iran starting in 1979 for two decades. That's 20 years, right? We, we think that's, you know, our whole lifetime. If that happened in our country, and in some ways with secular humanism becoming more the new normal, right, the seeds and roots are already planted and growing. Um, but what would our response be? Um, well, I'll tell you what our response needs to be. Don't grow weary in doing good, for in due season you will reap a harvest if you don't give up. So the Christians who kept planting and watering in Iran, planting and watering, planting and watering, and some God called home to be with him through martyrdom, eventually saw the harvest that Jesus grew because Jesus never breaks his promise. He will build his church. I'm going to get to the point about the wise, but I got one more sidebar. <clears throat> I was actually going on to the wise when I was preparing this message, and then God brought this point to my mind because I just I don't I don't want us to miss it. Um, I talked about Drew um, building his house, and and, um, and that builder, you know, he's building the house to certain blueprints and, and specs. And uh, I guess that, you know, they call something like that, like a spec home or something like that, I've heard. Um, but the house is going to be put on the market for sale. And um, it, you, you think it odd if the buyer, you know, let's say it's built to specs and it's a two-car garage. If the buyer's like, why isn't there a three-car garage here? Well, it'd be like, because it's a, we built it to a spec and it's a two-car garage. Um, my point is this. I don't want us to lose. Jesus is building, says, I will build my church, okay? Jesus is building his church. And let's not confuse what we think that is supposed to look like with what he is actually building. Um, in other words, let's leave the building and growing up to him, and let's focus on being faithful to planting and watering. Um, I think what often causes Christians to get burnt out in ministry um, is that they have expectations for what they believe is supposed to happen rather than leaving the results side to God. Um, but let's instead pour our energy into being faithful servants to what God is calling us to do on a day-in, day-out basis. And, and as we said, you know, we're talking, we wanted to do this covenant series before, um, you know, we move into this uh, new building, which, you know, you know, in some ways we could say like this is a, a new phase that you know God is bringing us through but again expectations my, my boss always talks about managing expectations and um, we don't have an expectation that okay now that this new phase is happening that God is going to build his church and it's going to look like this that's not what we want to do what we want to do is be faithful at planting and watering planting and watering Leave how God is going to build his church up to him. Um, and then we can stand back and go, wow, didn't know it was going to look like that, God, but that's cool. 
So this was a quote that I, <clears throat> I read that I think that goes along with this. God is providential enough to make our most menial of tasks into something meaningful. He's transcendent enough and yet draws near enough to us to make the mundane in our lives significant for his glory. And, and the point of that is that like, you know, 99% of our lives is, we, we might think is trivial and mundane, but, but we need to not lose sight of the fact that like, God is in that, God is in the mundane, and, and, and it can be meaningful. Um, uh, the example that that quote came from was in Jacob's life, and that uh, Jacob had, he was going to, um, to Laban's house, right? And he had this dream, this credible dream, and but then, you know, he's going on the next day or days after, whatever, and just having this conversation with these shepherds and um, seems like menial, you know, sitting around talking to shepherds, but then, you know, he runs into Rachel that day, you know. Um, so in the mundane, you know, God, God was working. Um, the example I thought of in the New Testament here is, um, you might know that Paul described an experience he had in 2 Corinthians where he says he was caught up into paradise and heard things that cannot be told. But, you know, again, and, and sometimes we live in a day and age where uh, some people want to have these experiences all the time. Um, it, and it's a good thing that Paul did not set expectations for this to be a regular occurrence in his relationship with God, or else we might not have most of the New Testament, as he would have ended up being just another burned out minister because he couldn't, you know, like, God, why can't I have this experience again and again? Well, maybe you only had it one time in, in, in 30 years, and the rest was mundane. Um, but Paul understood in the mundane, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, which is very mundane, do all for the glory of God. Okay, no more sidebars. Um, so we've established the most important thing in talking about the church is that Jesus promised that he would build his church. And in all seriousness, if that's all we knew, that would be enough. Because it's a statement of fact, it's true, it has happened since he said it, and it will continue to happen. You know, if Jesus just, if all we knew about the church, right, is just Jesus said, I will build my church. And we knew nothing else about the church. We knew nothing about these other verses about the church. We just knew that he would build it. Then, really, that would be enough. And... We could just go with it. But he has chosen to give us more, so um, we'll go with more. In fact, uh, I looked up every one of the verses on church, and that's where most of this message comes from, So, uh, and, and next week's. But um, so the why. Why did he create the church? <clears throat> so I'm just going to go over five from my study of every verse that pertained to the church, and, and you all could come out with these five as well. Um, but uh, number one, he created the church to be a permanent display or portrait of God's multifaceted wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the cosmos, in the heavenly places. That, that came from that verse that was, was read, Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. Um, I, I won't go to reading through the whole all the verses again, but we talked about the, the mystery of Christ 
And, um, and the key verse here was, and to bring the light, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers, authorities in the heavenly places. So what I'm saying is he created this church to be this display of his, his manifold wisdom, which just means very multifaceted wisdom to the, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I mean, you're thinking like, we don't even, we don't even know what's going on up there. Um, and so part of his creation of the church was, was for them, you know, not for us. And, and I think what's interesting about this whole passage is um, you're wondering, really, it would, be, it would be neat to get to heaven and find out what was going on because maybe all the, everyone in the heavenly places was thinking, oh, yeah, you know, God has his people, you know, it's the Israelites and, you know, the devil, I've got the rest of, I've got, I've got everyone else. You know, I'll let God have his people and i got everyone else. And then at the 11th hour, God, you know, pulls a fast one on him and is like, aha, you know, you didn't know that I had this hidden since the beginning of time, but now I'm going to create this thing called the church and it's open to everybody, Jews, Gentiles, anybody. And through the gospel, you know, that's the open door and, and, and there's going to be this thing called, and then all the rules and authorities, the demons, everyone's like, oh man, you outsmarted us, you know, and we didn't see that one coming. Um, but, uh, so, yeah, not just God's people. Um, and, and that's this other verse that, that uh, just by providence, David picked out was First Peter 2.9, um, which goes along with this, because now the church is this, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may, again, he, he even said, why? And that's what I... Why? What role do we play? What role do we play in this thing that, that is for the heavenly places? Well, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the creation of the church by Jesus Christ, which is this royal priesthood that we are, this chosen race that we are, this people for his own possession that we are. Um, as Peter refers to the church, we can display the multifaceted wisdom of God both to the unseen world, but we can also show it to the seen world as we proclaim God's glory through our words and our deeds. That's what I think of proclaiming the excellencies of him as. As, as we do this by living out the truth of Scripture, then we are proclaiming to the world the excellencies of him, the wisdom of God. Um, okay, number two. He created the church to draw a distinction between light and darkness. Um, so Acts 8.1 talks about when there started to be persecution in the church, and it's right after Stephen was stoned, and it says, And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great per persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So, of course, we know that there was light and darkness, as early as Genesis, but the creation of the church provides this line of delineation between light and darkness 
as well between those who belong to the Lord um, and those who do not belong to the Lord. And it's interesting if you, um, in the book of Acts, um, there's that one verse that we looked at that says, the Lord was adding to their number, those who were being saved. There's other um, verses in Acts where it says, they were added to the Lord. They were added to the Lord. It's like they're on his team, more added to his team, less added to the enemy's team. Um, you know, we need to understand what else the church is defined as in the New Testament so that when we are persecuted, we do not take it personally. Okay, so, so these other verses that talk about what the church is, you know, church equals this, kind of like help us understand why we are going to face persecution. Well, both Ephesians 1 and Colossians 1 clearly say that the church is his body. Just straight up, they say the church is his body. Um, and then Ephesians goes on to say the church is the fullness of him, that is Jesus Christ. So we should never, ever be surprised by attacks from those who are not on the Lord's side because they're not personal attacks against us. They're attacks on Christ. We are the church. We are the body. We are the fullness of him. Um, and then in 1 Timothy 3.15, um, Paul refers to the church as three things. The household of God, a pillar of truth, and a buttress of truth. Um, so now the church is the defense keepers of truth, the supporters of truth. And if the world is not coming after us now, it will, unless we stop proclaiming the truth at some point then um, the world might, you know, back off. Uh, so we should understand that um, it's, it's not personal. It, it's, we are these things. The church is these things. And if we're going to be the church, then the world is going to be against these things, okay? Um, last point here, how else can we as the church be a distinct light in a world of darkness? Well, plain and simply by, by putting others above ourselves. Um, I'll get more into to some things next week about the, the what's and the how's, but um, in 1 Corinthians 10, um, Paul's talking about this cultural issue about eating meat and offered idols and things, and I'm not going to get into the whole background of the cultural issue, but in the end, the answer to all that can be summed up in just a few phrases that he said from that passage. Um, and, and these are, he's talking about, this is how I live my life. This is how you should live your life to avoid these issues. One, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Um, and then a second one, he says, so whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. Do we have that in mind? as we're going through life. And number three, give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. That was his mindset. Don't want to offend outsiders, insiders, you know, uh, don't want to be thinking, is any, I'm doing this for my advantage? No, but that 
I want to think about the many that they may be saved. So if you think of the string of Christmas lights that you're going to put around your Christmas tree this year, and let's just say 50% of the bulbs didn't work and 50% did, and you'd hang that around your tree, um, you might sit back and look and go like, wow, that doesn't look very appealing, um, not very bright. Um, but is not the church's light dim to the world around us when there are not enough individual lights that are living in this way that Paul is calling us to live in this passage. But if the majority of us are living in a way that we are putting others above ourselves, then cumulatively, the church will shine brightly to the world around us. And next, next week, I'm going to share a story uh, from the early church that um, it, it really is uh, it, it's super convicting, but... Uh, it's, it's this. It's let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Um, it's uh, I try to please everyone and everything, not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many, that they may be saved. It's, but it, it's, um, hmm, I, I'll, I'll share it next week. Um, it really makes you think about how we should live. Um, okay, number three. He created the church as a vehicle whereby he could demonstrate his power and authority to his people and to the world. So, um, uh, you know, the church is, is just, like I said, it's just like it's this institution, if you will, that where he, his power can be demonstrated and his authority can be demonstrated both to his people and to the world. And and the verses I have here are in Acts 5, where Ananias collapsed and died, and great fear came over all who heard about it. And I'm sure that all who heard about it weren't just people inside the church. Um, I'm sure it was mostly them, but probably some from outside the church, too. And, um, and probably people were, wow, what's, uh, what kind of God are they what's going on over there in that church? Um, and uh, and then Acts two forty three to forty seven, um, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all the believers were together and had all things in common. And they would sell their property and possessions and share them with all to the extent that anyone had need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So God was using the church as a vehicle of demonstrating his power, his authority, and the love of the people even was, was rubbing off on the people around them. Um, <clears throat> number four, he created the church to be the garden for which his people would grow. So, um, if you just think of uh, uh, God creating the church to be uh, a place that, um, if there wasn't the ch church, you know, I mean, e even um, <laughs> that, that article I want to send out talks about um, uh, kind of like testing, you know, the, the Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit, you know, seeing, uh, validating the Spirit in you. It's like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and all self-control. Um, yeah, when you're sitting in a room by yourself, you're probably thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm all good with these. Yeah, I have a lot of joy. 
But no, God gave us the church, right? I mean, how is that? Are you, you know, when that person rubs you wrong and you have to give up your favorite thing because they want to eat somewhere else that you don't want? I mean, just like, how's that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness working out? You know, I mean, God created this garden so that we could grow. We're not going to grow in a, in a vacuum. Um, so it provides the context for where his people can keep one another accountable um, to being little Christs. This is a term from C.S. Lewis um, in the world. And it's the context that God has created for building the faith of his people. Um, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Um, that phrase from C.S. Lewis comes from this quote. He said, every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. But um, it was Jesus himself that, that um, talked about the purpose, one of these uh, purposes of the church uh, being in the context of, of keeping one another accountable. Um, Matthew 18, 15 through 17, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let it be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. And then 1 Corinthians 5, 12. For what business of mine is it to judge outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? And then 1 Corinthians 6, 4. So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I mean, God gave us the church so that we could... We could help one another to grow. And, and then regarding building faith, um, talks about Paul was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And, and then when um, the church of Jerusalem came out with some ordinances for the other churches to follow, again, the vehicle was the church to, to help build the others, Acts 16.5. Now, while they were passing through the cities where the churches were, Obviously, they were delivering the ordinances for them to follow, which had been determined by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. So again, another reason that God created the church to to to, to be this place where people could, could grow. And then finally, last fifth one here, He created the church to be a picture of love and unity like the Godhead, um, you know, it, it, in a perfect world, the church would, would, would look like God to the world. It would be this perfect picture of love and unity and, and the marriage relationship, you know, he likens it to in Ephesians 5, as you all know. And sadly, though, um, over years of history, as we all know, the church hasn't done a very good job of, of this one. And um, uh, sometimes, you know, we might like to point to other religions and say, well, look at that, look at uh, Islam. There's so many sects and, and uh, they, multiple sects, and they uh, have such deep divisions, they even, they even have wars against each other and kill each other to the death because of the differences they have. It's like, yeah, well, why don't you take a look at our history? Some, I mean, I think that's happened in our history too. And, you know, I, I don't know that, like, at first I was thinking, like, that probably 
was not, I don't know what God was thinking during that time in the church's history. However, on the positive side, he was still building his church. And, you know, he never, the church didn't just fall by the wayside. It, it's, he will build his church, he, you know, till the end. Um, it, it's just, it's, so even with that terrible history, um, uh, so I'm sure that when God created the church, the idea was for the church to be a shining light in the world um, because the church is his body. It's the fullness of him. That's what he wants it to look like to the world. But over the years, um, you know, like I said, it wasn't always that way. And um, 1 Corinthians 11 just uh, talks about these divisions. I hear that there are divisions exist among you. Um, and then towards the end he says, do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing what am I to say to you? Shall I praise you? And this I do not praise you. The point is, God does not desire divisions within the church. And disrespecting people like they were doing here and leaving people in the church with unmet needs, he equates to despising the church of God. Do you despise, you, or do you despise the church of God? Um, and not do you despise your brother or sister? No, do you despise the church of God? I mean, he takes divisions very seriously. And then in Ephesians 5, um, uh, I won't read it all, but um, the, the main thing he says, Therefore a man shall leave us, well, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. So God saw fit to give us not only a promise that he would build his church, but he saw fit to give us the why. Um, I might try to get them out on the email, those five whys that I've come up with here. And, um, and next week, we'll dig into the what's in the house so that when we say in our covenant, we, the members of Liberty Hills Bible Church, recognize Christ's purpose for the church, we will forever have a, a more broad understanding uh, in our own minds of the whys uh, and the what's in the house of what that means for us as we continue to be His body just in this little location um, of the world. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, um, just thank you for your word, God. Thank you for your preservation of it, God. Um, and uh, <clears throat> that um, we have this uh, foundation of, of you as the cornerstone and um, and, and your word to to um, to bank on to 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 live our lives and and God may we as we as we move on in the covenant says we recognize the purpose of the church therefore you know we do this and so forth and so on which really has a lot of the outworking of the what's and the hows. Um, 
of the church. God, I, I pray that you would help us to, to um, be an example of what um, your vision was for um, the church uh, in, in the days to come, Lord. And uh, uh, even, even more, uh, just more and more, God, um, that, that we would uh, uh, be a better representation of the fullness of Christ, be a better representation of your body, um, uh, be a, a, a better people that is proclaiming your excellencies um, in the days to come. We pray for your grace, God, that we would be able to be used by you to do this in, in this area of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.